Welcome to the Remote Warfare Programme podcast. In this episode, we have a recording of a panel from the Conceptualising Remote Warfare Conference, which the Remote Warfare Programme held in collaboration with the University of Kent on the 28th of February and 1st of March. The conference pulled together a wide range of experts from the military, government, academia and civil society to discuss the past, present and future of remote warfare as well as the implications of this approach. We couldn't have organised a conference without the support of the Conflict Analysis User Centre at the University of Kent and the British International Studies Association. If you like what you hear at this podcast, you can hear more panels in our upcoming episodes and you can read more depth in more depth about the topics in our upcoming book released in early 2020. For now, enjoy the podcast. Right, good afternoon everyone. Um, now I know that usually after lunch there's kind of a, a digestive slump, but fortunately we have an excellent panel that I think can really enliven the discussion uh, on the costs and consequences of remote warfare. And rather than do elaborate long introductions, I think their expertise speaks for itself. So I'm going to first hand over to Professor Julian Richards uh, from the University of Buckinghamshire, who's going to be talking about intelligence sharing, and then we'll move on. Okay. Uh, thank you. Right. Um, okay. So I try not to uh, exacerbate the digestive slump um, <clears throat> as best I can. I should first of all say um, we're actually University of Buckingham, not Buckinghamshire. There are two universities in Buckinghamshire. Um, we're the smaller but better one. So um, <laughs> just that my uh, my colleagues would would want me to say that. Anyway. Um, without further ado, I'm going to talk about um, intelligence and intelligence sharing. And um, my discussion today is largely derived from a paper which Oxford Research Group um, very kindly asked me to publish um, last autumn about intelligence sharing after 9-11. <clears throat> and of course, intelligence is kind of underpins all of the things that we've been talking about today and, and yesterday indeed, it's the, it's the glue that binds together a lot of the processes and relationships and, and interactions, whether that's um, tactical intelligence derived from um, uh, interrogations and interviews, human intelligence or um, communications interception or operational data, a lot of the systems that we've been talking about, the, the targeting data that's, that's fed into the um, remote warfare systems is... Is, is shared between intelligence partners. Um, and, and crucially also techniques and technologies and capabilities. So, uh, so we've heard the word proliferation mentioned once or twice today. That's, that's a factor here as well, that as, as, as these very um, cutting edge technologies are being developed, they're also being shared with certain partners and they'll be, they'll be proliferating out there. So there's a whole bunch of, of issues there. Um, that need to be thought about in this context. And of course the, the post 9-11 bit is really important because what's, what that's shown is how um, intelligence relationships have really changed in terms of the, the scale and the scope um, and the range of, of partners involved in those relationships and in, in some ways rather um, problematic ways. I was just um, having a look around at stuff that's been reported in the news and this this is quite interesting as you as you probably know um, after Snowden Edward Snowden made his revelations in 2013 a number of legal challenges and um, regulatory challenges were made um, in the US and the UK uh, and in other countries for that matter and this this reports quite interesting you, you you can see that GCHQ was um, investigated in terms of, uh, well it wasn't actually GCHQ, it's the, the British government um, in terms of its new act, the Investigatory Powers Act that was passed in 2016, um, as to whether this complied with European um, human rights and it went back and forth, there was an appeal and it ended up at the European Court and interestingly they did, they have ruled that there are aspects of this act that are technically illegal under European law that relate to um, the, the gathering of communications data. Um, but at the same time, they, they said that the intelligence sharing bit was, uh, was fine as far as they were concerned. There, there, there was no legal issue there. And we've heard a couple of times today how 
um, there have been um, legal challenges or regulatory challenges to the question of how intelligence is shared and how far it implies complicity. If, if we share um, targeting data with the Americans and they use it to, to kill some people or vice versa, um, are, we, are we complicit? And of course trying to get to the underneath the generalised state level sharing relationships down to the detail of that um, is, is proving to be very difficult. So there's a few, um, I'm, I'm going to kind of pre present this in terms of the case for intelligence sharing and, and the case against, if you like. So, so the drivers on both sides of this. And then I'll quickly conclude with some thoughts uh, about UK-specific um, concerns and issues that we need to consider. So obviously there are a lot of drivers for um, states to share intelligence and to do so in it as um, efficient a way as possible. And indeed, the United Nations Security Council actually passed a resolution last year um, stating that states actually have a, um, a duty to share data and share intelligence effectively um, to protect their citizenries, particularly on issues of... Um, the, the, the issue they were particularly looking at was returning um, jihadist fighters, if I can use that term, so people who'd been out to fight in Iraq and Syria who were returning to um, the countries from where they came, and some of whom potentially pose a serious risk. Um, so there's, uh, there's a sort of officially recognised obligation to try and do this as best we can to, to deliver security. And of course transnational um, threats and problems, which are very much a feature of the post-Cold War world, um, inevitably require transnational solutions. It's, it's very difficult for any one country to do this on its own. Um, we've got a, we, the, the current threat picture is much more dynamic, more fluid, more evolutionary perhaps than it, it was in years gone by. Um, so states are thinking about that in terms of the partnerships that they're forging and the, the data that they're sharing. And there is, of course, an inescapable logic in um, capacity building. So if we, want, if we want some of our partners to be better, not just better um, technically or better in terms of their capabilities, but also perhaps better legally and, and ethically, um, then we ought to, um, you could argue, we ought to be investing in, in helping to make that happen. But of course there is a basic economic benefit as well in terms of sharing the burden of the the amount of intelligence that we all um, seem to need. So there, there are some fairly clear drivers for doing this. But of course there are serious risks with this, which, which risks that are perhaps um, accelerate as the, the scale and the um, automation and the complexity of sharing happens. So one of the um, concerns um, following the Snowden revelations was that the UK could be outsourcing um, certain activities to partners, and particularly the US, um, of uh, surveillance uh, actions that would be technically illegal here. Um, and of course the wider range of partners that you've got and the more integrated your intelligence links are with them, um, there, there is theoretically a risk that you might circumvent legal restrictions in your own country by asking one of your partners to do something for you. Um, as with anything, the more data that's being shared, the more partners you've got, uh, to a certain extent the less control you've got over how that information might be used or how it, um, where it might end up. And there are concerns about our ability to track the use of intelligence that we might share with partners um, for carrying out abuses, whether those are assassinations or um, torture of, of um, detainees and those sorts of issues. There's a, there's a reasonable question to be asked, that the more we do this, is there not a growing risk that um, we're, we're going to have less and less ability to track what happens to the intelligence that's shared? And on the digital side, um, there are the, the questions of the the human right to privacy um, come into focus where a lot of this sharing is becoming more and more automated. So what we're talking about here, one of the things, many things that Snowden revealed was the, the range of um, signals intelligence relationships that the US and the UK have with other parties. 
And these are very, very integrated, very high volume, very automated exchanges of, of, of bulk sets of data um, that's flying around the place. And of course, if, if the more automated that becomes, the potentially the bigger the risks in any one party knowing where stuff has gone, knowing what's been done with it, um, and knowing what the nature of the data that we're receiving in return is and where it's come from and how it was collected. Um, so I think these are, these are very real risks that we have to consider and set against the, the drivers for, for doing intelligence. And the more technologically advanced this becomes, the more automated this becomes, the more perhaps that um, we have to, to think about these things. So I thought I'd just consider a few specific issues as they apply to the UK. And of course, if you're, if you're a, a state like the UK, that what you want to avoid, if possible, in, in your intelligence sharing activities is newspaper headlines like the one we can see on the right there from The Independent. And this was <coughs> uh, the result of uh, what was called the Gibson Inquiry, um, but eventually became an Intelligence and Security Committee parliamentary inquiry into um, detainee mistreatment and rendition in the post-9-11 period. And this is a, a particularly interesting inquiry. It was a rather flawed inquiry for various reasons in terms of how much data they were able to get access to and how many, how many people they could interview and so on. Um, but nevertheless, those of you who've, who've studied this, and I'm sure there are people in the room who have, will know that it did actually come up with some, some quite insightful um, conclusions. And this, in this case, is particularly about um, the treatment of detainees and how, whether and how sh the sh shared intelligence drives that, that process. As, and as far as the UK was concerned, as, as you know, it identified that there were, there were kind of two periods. So there was an immediate 9-11 period, post-9-11 period up to 2004, where we did seem to have got ourselves into cases of being complicit with abuse. And that particularly, there were particular concerns about our relationship with the US, with, with all um, due respect to our US friends in the room. <laughs> and you might wish to, to offer your uh, thoughts about this. So th there were a number of cases that, which I, I haven't delineated all of them here. One minute, okay. Um, cases where intelligence was knowingly shared with partners um, where there was a pretty high um, degree of anticipation that it would be used to commit abuses, um, cases where in intelligence directly led to extraordinary renditions and so on and so forth. And with, in, in terms of the relationship with the US, there was a sense of accepting general assurances in that early period that everything was fine, not to worry, um, this was all, there was nothing to, to worry about. When it was quite clear that um, there were things to worry about, but a number of officials were perhaps um, not, didn't feel empowered to, to raise concerns or to um, report some of those things. So um, the results of that are something that sounds very boring and bureaucratic called the Consolidated Guidance, which is a, a comprehensive set of guidance to staff who are working on the front line, um, military staff primarily, and who are interfacing with, with partners, not just the US, but other partners, about what constitutes abuse and what they should do if they suspect it's happening. And the general feeling seems to be that that is leading to some, um, some better outcomes, but there are still particular concerns. And there are particular concerns about when we're dealing with multi-agency partners. So in the intelligence business, um, fusion centres, where multiple partners are all sat together and intelligence is being pooled and shared in quite a dynamic way. There, is, there are big questions that come out of this about if we, the British government, are, um, have a big role in that fusion centre, and there's a particular case concerning Kenya that's discussed in the, in the inquiry reports, how much responsibility do we bear if... if some of those partners occasionally commit abuses if they torture detainees or whatever it may be. Um, do we bear responsibility for that or not? And, and MI6 are actually in a bit of a um, debate with um, the government about that. And that's, that, that'll be an interesting one 
to follow. And then finally, finally, on the, on the digital side of things, um, Snowden's revelations led to a number of investigations. The most um, immediate one was into, into a system called PRISM, um, which is an, an NSA, bless you, an NSA system that um, gathers bulk data which, which GCHQ can feed into and theoretically could use to um, gather unwarranted intercepted data on UK nationals, theoretically. Um, so the question was, were we outsourcing that activity to a partner but, um, to, to get them to do something that we would have had to have had um, lots of warrantry signed to do ourselves? And, and interestingly, the, the investigation was quite swift and found, found no evidence of that outsourcing happening. So that's, um, that should be a comfort to us. Um, however, there are all sorts of issues about the effectiveness of the Parliamentary Oversight um, Committee, access to data that we're able to have in some of the other investigations, such as the investigation into the British drone strikes against terrorist targets in Syria, um, they complained bitterly, their committee complained bitterly that they just weren't given the information that they wanted and what they were given was, was massively redacted. So I think a lot of the, and this is the very last thing I'm going to say, <laughs> I promise, um, a lot of the devil is in the detail of the oversight and accountability procedures and mechanisms here. Um, intelligence sharing has to happen for various reasons, but how well can we scrutinise what's going on and how well will we be able to do that when it becomes increasingly um, automated? So anyway, there's a few thoughts to be going on with. Yeah, okay? I think a lot for us to think through, but thank you very much. I'd like to now hand over to uh, Drs. Norma Rossi and uh, Malt Ryman from, uh, from Armas, who are going to be talking about the consequences and costs of ever-present and ever-absent conflict. Thank you very much. So one of the aims of these conferences has been that of thinking through how do we conceptualize remote warfare. So um, I would like to start this presentation by giving you the way, that the kind of definition of the focus that we use and understand the ways that allows us to then proceed with our arguments. So our understanding of remote warfare for this specific um, context is the idea that remote warfare is a type of warfare that implies a normative commitment of making war consi consistently absent in some privileged spaces and time. And this has actually in turn the effect of making it consistently present in other mm -hmm. spaces and times. So, and what our paper wants to do is to concentrate on the effects that remote warfare has on the society from which war is removed from. So um, the paper proceeds in two ways. First, I articulate why the idea of a war, everywhere war put forward, for instance, by Gregory, um, can lead almost to overlook partially the normative commitment embedded in the idea of remote warfare. And then we illustrate the effect of removing war, or we start exploring it, by looking at the outsourcing of that uh, through the use of private military companies. Um, so, um, First part, <laughs> the literature on remote warfare has claimed that um, one of its key effects has been blurring the lines between war and peace. Notions of um, everywhere war and liquid warfare have been utilized to capture the idea that we are witnessing an untying of the conventional spatial and temporal dimensions of conventional war. As we heard yesterday, war is become spatially dispersed and temporally open-ended. So the use of drones is obviously an example that we have been discussing a lot during the, la the last two days, is an instantiation of a constant situational war. Um, while the use of private military companies have blurred the distinction between civilians and combatants, extending the space of the battlefield and blurring its borders. At the same time, the, the very idea of the war on terror has made the legal political space of war global and perpetual. As Reed has argued, liberal regimes are now committed to war without end, temporally, spatial, and politically. In this sense, insofar as remote warfare enables a condition of everywhere war, it is everything but remote from the society from which it originates. And critical security uh, scholarship has shown uh, through different analysis 
looking at the profound political and legal effects that remote war has on liberal democracies, such as increasing lack of democratic accountability in, a, in the enactment of this war, the increasing use of emergency exceptional legislation, the increasing militarization of domestic security, and the use of technique, um, as for, for instance, the latest book of Patricia Owens has shown, travel from counterinsurgency abroad to counterterrorism at home. So in that sense, this literature, this literature has pointed towards the fact that remote warfare has enabled a line of continuity between the state of perpetual war outside, through drones, war on terror, and uh, increasing blurry line between emergency and norm inside the states of origin. However, focusing excessively on this continuity, on the ways in which the blurring of the lines between inside and outside is enabled by remote warfare, underestimates the centrality of the normative assumption which is hidden in plain sight in the very term remote warfare. Remote warfare is not everywhere, is not everywhere war, we argue, but a form of war that has the specific normative commitment of removing war from some privileged spaces and time. As such, remote warfare does not only reconfigure the space and time of war by blurring the lines between war and peace inside and outside, and creating a continuous space and time of war everywhere, but it also works to create conditions which sharply separate spaces and times in which war takes place and spaces and times from which war is removed. So a clear illustration of this is, as Khan has claimed, the claim that often wars out there are justified on the basis of preventing that they come over here. So exactly this kind of dichotomy. Um, so what we are doing now is <coughs> we examine how the increasing use of private military companies represents an attempt to outsource the death of, the, of those remote warfare and ask what the consequences of this outsourcing of the very are. So what are these consequences on the very political fabric of the states from which death is removed? Yeah, so uh, one of the central elements um, of remote warfare, as we discussed during these days, is involves the kind of shifting the burdens and risks and responsibilities of war onto others, and there were increasingly externalizing the burdens of war uh, and contracting out security tasks to an assortment of uh, proxies beyond the regular armed forces. Uh, and PMNCs fulfill a key function in this regard uh, by enabling states to fight war remotely in a fashion that obfuscates the very presence. So while media reports the deaths of every fallen soldier, contract the deaths receive only limited attention. Um, you know, we might draw on the, the recent Stallone movies, The Expendables. Uh, they are expendable. Um, and we kind of uh, can kind of use an, an, um, an example for that. So in 2004, a bit ago, uh, a major news story hit the US um, and was like that um, the um, killed in action mark has passed 1,000 soldiers. That was a big thing. Um, however, the blunt reality was that uh, U.S. casualties were much higher because contractor deaths were not kind of included in the statistics. Um, so in 2012, um, Shona and Swan observed that contractor deaths now represent over 25% of overall U.S. fatalities. Um, but however, they also said um, these numbers are still not right because um, non-U.S. citizen deaths have not been tracked with any reliability. So what Shona and Swan conclude is that on the modern battlefield, contractor personnel are dying at rates similar to and at times in excess of soldiers. Uh, nevertheless, contractor casualties go basically unnoticed. Uh, and some of the effects of this non-recognition of contractor deaths um, have already been pointed out by the literature. So we kind of see um, a way of plausible deniability of your actions, uh, a form of desensitizing uh, populations towards interventions because you know our own soldiers are not dying but someone else. So it was kind of hiding the cost of war. However, the externalization of the burdens of war to private contractors, we argue, uh, not only provides potential benefits to the states in hiding the cost of war, uh, but it also has the potential to unravel um, the very political fabric on which the, the, the modern state has been founded, as kind of some of the stuff we heard yesterday that you was talking about. And one of the key things here is that we always think in terms of this political authority of the state uh, in a barbarian terms as a human community that claims a legitimate monopoly. Um, and that is a very materialistic and institutionalized focus, but we kind of take a more Bourdieuian approach to that, that we also have to think of 
a monopoly on symbolic life. Um, and here it's important that Weber himself has pointed that out, which lots of literature often overlooks, because we just focus on this legitimate monopoly. Uh, and Weber, I quote him, uh, says the definition of a nice definition of the state is that the location of death within a series of meaningful and consecrated events ultimately lies at the base of all endeavors to support the autonomous dignity of the polity resting. So military remembrance rituals have thus a constitutive function in the production and reproduction of sovereign claims to political authority and the creation of national identities. So um, commemorative rituals are kind of part of the ontological security of the state. Um, we kind of might think about 2014 when we remember the centenary of uh, World War I, uh, and London um, kind of portrayed a, a gigantic artwork with 888,246 poppies, each representing a British military casualty. <coughs> and such events form an integral part within the construction of national narratives because it's the remembrance of those who passed that creates a sense of unity and national belonging, which in turn forges the relational identity between state and citizens. So in the words of Jens Bartelsen, uh, the modern subject and the modern state are linked inside knowledge, and the concept of nation and community are used to express this unity. A nationalism, as David Campbell has argued, therefore needs to be understood as one of the many ways through which the modern state pursues its legitimacy. And here soldiers play a prominent role in the state's quest for legitimacy, as the notion of the nation and with it the modern conception of citizenship are intrinsically linked to the idea of um, soldiering as a prerequisite for citizen rights. And uh, you was talking about this yesterday, how this comes out of the French Revolution. Um, one of the key things here, however, is that the French Revolution also changed uh, our understanding of sacrifice. And that was a key thing. It's not just that you kind of fight for your nation, but it's actually the very act of dying for your nation that kind of constitutes that link. Um, and one of the key things here is that uh, um, sovereignty is kind of uh, the, the veneer or the, the, the dying in the, in the name of the nation kind of creates the, the veneer for sovereignty and the legitimacy of the political authority. And Khan kind of expressed it quite nicely when saying we maintain the nation by sacrificing the sons. So national identity, citizenship, and sacrifice are intrinsically linked, and as such, sacrifice plays a key function in the constitution of political authority. And to quote Khan again, without sacrifice, no sovereign, without sovereign, no identity. So the historic link, however, between citizenship, sacrifice, and the state is increasingly challenged by outsourcing practices, as, we, as I kind of uh, maintained that. So what are the effects of this? First, by removing death from the equation of war, remote warfare weakens the relationship between citizenship, sacrifice, and national identity. Uh, and as argued before, through the commemoration of particular soldier bodies, the state is able to express the unity of particular citizens living within the shared territorial confines of this particular state. So the sage's dead body is therefore a powerful tool that expresses the unity of man and state articulated in terms of national identity grounded in sacrifice. Uh, however, by rendering death invisible through the increasing practice of outsourcing sacrifice, the very institution of the state itself um, is challenged as sacrifices at the heart of the polity resting on force, as Weber maintained. So in the words of Carolyn Marvin and David Ingle, without memory of blood sacrifice, the nation state cannot exist, or at last, not for long. Or put differently by Khan again, without sacrifice and so forth. So second, and more importantly actually from our standpoint is, through though remote warfare increasingly omits death from public attention, sacrifice and consequentially sovereignty are not disappearing. They are rather relocated. Um, and one of the things that we can draw on is uh, Blackwater's ability, for example, to insist that it was both a private business as well as part of the sovereign body, uh, has the function of redesigning the state and inscribing the logic of the market within the state. So thereby moving the side of sovereignty rather than undermining it. Uh, and PMMCs are increasingly beginning to frame the deaths of their employees within the language of sacrifice, holding commemorative events, and erecting shrines of the fallen. This is a kind of a case in point how this might be changed. So uh, in overall conclusion, what we kind of argued is, first of all, uh, our understanding of remote warfare as everywhere war overlooks a normative commitment uh, inherent in the term itself, so removing war from privileged spaces and times, that's the first thing. And second, uh, one of the key effects of this is um, what Abigail and Emily has also have pointed out in one of her, their, their recent publications, is that um, remote warfare <coughs> points to the ideological deaths of the nation-building project and the societies where remote warfare takes place. 
However, we also argue it happens the same with societies that actually do remote warfare themselves. So the nation-building process within those states for which remote warfare is conducted, the same happens there. Um, however, what is constructed instead? Um, and we see that the outsourcing of deaths to, to PMCs raises the very question of how, let's call them, neoliberal states are um, renegotiating the very meaning of what it means to die and to sacrifice for a bigger cause, or if that is even still possible to do so with the neoliberal states. Uh, and what is at stake uh, in this question, as this paper is arguing, is the very existence of a collective or individual subjectivity that might be sacrificed. And the question is, where is the subjectivity still residing? Is it changing? Is it transforming? And where is it located? Is it located within this nation-state sacrifice link, or is it moving to some form of neoliberal linkage? Thank you very much. We now turn to Emil Archibald from the University of Durham, who's going to be talking about the strategic logic of remote warfare. Yes, something like that. All right. Hello, everyone. Um, first of all, uh, I'm very susceptible to death of, by PowerPoint myself, so I decided to spare you that. Um, and also, this is work very much in progress, so I'm very much looking uh, forward to feedback if you have any positive, negative, abuse, insults, anything. <laughs> right, so essentially, um, the theme of this conference was remote warfare, past, present, and future. So what I'm doing here, uh, a bit as uh, John Alexander did this morning, is I'm going back to the past with a view to coming back eventually um, to present and potentially future. So what I'm doing in this presentation is looking at the strategic logic underpinning one prominent situation in which aerial power was used as the primary tool for purposes of counterinsurgency. Namely, that's the war in Vietnam. I'm talking here about the American intervention in Vietnam, not the French war, French Indochina war that preceded it. So um, what I'm arguing essentially is that um, in the war in Vietnam, the strategic logic driving the use of air power for counterinsurgency was uh, woefully underdeveloped. And that is something that we tend to see in contemporary uses of aerial power for counterinsurgency. And that that led to a failure to achieve any form of meaningful victory. Um, the, these um, counterinsurgency operations in Vietnam privileged politically convenient means rather than selection of the most effective method to achieve a strategic aim. Um, so I'm proceeding in maybe three parts. First one will consider why uh, refer back to Vietnam if the objective is to analyze contemporary counterinsurgency before going more deeply into the strategic logic and then ending with a few thoughts on uh, the notion of um, targeting civilians as a means to achieve counterinsurgency through aerial power. So um, there has been a certain tendency to assume that um, aerial counterinsurgency, namely through uh, drones, is something rather new and that therefore um, in, air, in the use of aerial power or drones, there's very limited value in going back um, to the past uh, for instance, Charles Dunlap said that perhaps the real lesson is that with respect to highly technological means of warfare, such as aerial bombardment, the value of historical examples is necessarily temporally limited. Uh, I'm not particularly convinced by that, uh, because you get into a situation a bit like um, Heraclitus says about you can't step into a river twice, because by the time you decide to step in it again, the river has moved, and it's in fact a new river. And then one of his disciple says, well, actually, you can't even step into it once because by the time you've decided to jump into the river, it's not the same river. And if you take that logic, um, the Dunlop's logic uh, at face value, that's essentially what you get. By the time you've started analyzing what is happening, it's too late. It's already moved on to something new. Um, Mark Klotfelter, um, who wrote The Limits of Air Power, possibly the book on um, aerial warfare in Vietnam, um, somewhat agrees and says that Vietnam provides no concrete models for effective bombing. Uh, but many of the elements that influence the air campaigns against North Vietnam could reappear in future American conflicts. And an awareness of these factors could benefit civilian and military leaders uh, wrestling with the prickly options of air power empowerment. And that's essentially uh, what I'm suggesting. So not that Vietnam and Afghanistan are exactly the same, or that Afghanistan is the new Vietnam, although that's convenient. 
um, but that there are uh, similarities between the two cases that need to be um, considered. Uh, in particular, in both cases, although ground forces were employed, uh, significantly so, um, air power was considered, and to a certain extent still is considered, the main uh, vehicle to uh, lead to strategic victory. Um, the objective in Vietnam was always to achieve a victory, to, to achieve a victory through the air, and the ground troops, at first at least, under the Rolling Thunder operation, the ground troops were meant at first to be supportive of that aim. That changed a few times during the war, as I'll get to later, but air power had played a, cert a central role there, certainly not only as uh, close combat support. So, um, moving on to the second part about the strategic logic of um, aerial power in Vietnam. Um, there are a few innovations or a few new uh, developments in Vietnam that uh, deserve to be highlighted. The first one is uh, what uh, Stephanie Carvin and Michael Williams have termed a move to uh, industrial warfare. The idea that um, warfare is something that it needs to be effective, um, it needs to be limited and needs to be able to achieve its aim um, in a way that can be calculated, measured, and tracked essentially. Um, the objective, unlike in the 40s, 50s, where um, the idea was that of a overwhelming response, um, the idea here is that of a limited war where you can calculate what the aim is, what the means to do that are, and then you can track it using a variety of metrics. Uh, Carvin and Williams emphasized the role of science in the constitution of the American way of warfare, as they call it. Um, and that therefore, as they say, um, war became, uh, this American systematized war to the point that it became an industrial process mirroring industrial society. Um, so their story of Vietnam, in their words, is that of a dream of scientific warfare becoming essentially a nightmare. Um, the problem with that, of course, is that if you focus only on metrics, that uh, you, you might lose uh, sight of the whole, of the wider picture. So again, Carvin and Williams argue that in Vietnam, the American war effort was heavy on data, but seemingly completely devoid on strategy. Um, the air campaign, particularly the first one, Rolling Thunder in Vietnam, um, was essentially a compromise effort. Uh, you had civilian leaders who disagreed with each other. The president did not agree with the Secretary of Defense, and uh, the military uh, commanders under did not agree with either of those. So you had an operation which essentially agreed on the means to be used, um, aerial bombardment, but did not agree on the strategic logic that was supposed to tie the, these means to, um, the, to achieving the strategic objective, which was essentially to guarantee the safety of uh, South Vietnam and prevent uh, the propagation, pre prevent South Vietnam to become, um, to fall to North Vietnam. So essentially you had aerial bombardment, you had a black box with something happening in it, and then some arrow and then victory. And the part in the middle there was essentially jumbled. So they went through essentially the idea, uh, going back to sort of Julio Duhet style strategy of bombing, of destroying the will of the people. So if you bomb them enough, uh, the people of North Vietnam will essentially break and then victory. They'll overthrow the government, they will stop fighting something. Um, there was the idea of destroying the, cap the capability of North Vietnam to sustain the war effort. We'll bomb um, resources, bomb the um, bomb um, oil facilities, um, factories, and so on. Uh, the uh, Strategic Air Command uh, had a list of 94 targets, which they essentially argued, if we destroy these 94 targets, we'll have won the war. They will be unable to fight. You had missions of interdiction, which was essentially uh, cutting off supplies to the Viet Cong, which was fighting in the south. Um, and once, essentially, once the Viet Cong would evidently be unable to achieve victory, North Vietnam would have to uh, give up because if they don't have a path to victory, they would stop. They would stop fighting. Sorry. So you had a number of different logics uh, that were competing with each other and that were all partially represented in the decision-making, but never sort of clearly established. So uh, Lyndon Johnson did not impose his vision. The military leaders were not able to convince the civilian leadership 
of um, the of the, log the strategic logic, and McNamara, somewhere in, the be in between, sort of went from one to the other, depending on how it worked, and um, depending on, essentially, on what he felt. Uh, Claude Felter has this great anecdote about McNamara participating in the targeting briefings, where no military personnel were present at first, and he would be the one representing the views of the Department of Defense, but sometimes he would change the views, he would, the targeting recommendations he would present based essentially on what he thought. So you would have the Joint Chief of Staff telling him what they needed, and he would sometimes change that based on his impressions, essentially. So um, the mission starts essentially as a mission to start, uh, Rolling Thunder starts as an, with the objective of uh, destroying both capabilities and the will to continue fighting. Um, after initial assessments that that's not working, switch over to interdiction. After they realize that they've overstated by far the, um, the need of the Viet Cong to rely on logist logistics from the north, they switch back to uh, bombarding oil refineries and so on. So um, essentially, there was no strategic vision of what was going to lead to victory. And if that's the case, um, how, you, how you achieve that aim, if you don't know what the aim is, is a big problem, obviously. Um, Mark Klotfelter, in contrast, he argues that uh, against the metrics that were being used, such as body counts, to achieve whether the campaign was effective. He argues that in air power, essentially, Clausewitz's definition of war as a continuation of political, political activity by other means provide the only true measure for evaluating effectiveness. Uh, whether uh, we agree with that or not, um, it's clear that there needs to be some strategic um, direction to the whole effort, and that was simply not there. The emphasis was overly tactical rather than strategic. Um, and that's what led to, um, that's what led to um, failure. So now moving, up, moving on briefly to the uh, last section on the role of the people. In one uh, minute. Yes, I know, thanks. Um, that is something that has always been, obviously, the role of the people in counterinsurgency has always been contested. Um, latest efforts in the American Armed Forces emphasize winning hearts and minds as a, um, as, a bio, as a key aim. Uh, in contrast, earlier um, theories of aerial power, such as Julio Duet's, emphasize um, essentially breaking the people. You don't try to win them over, you try to break them un until, they, until they lead to the collapse of the whole um, government and social order. Um, so there's a tension there inherent in aerial power. And it's grounded in a vision of essentially total warfare um, through which essentially targeting civilians is the only means of achieving that goal. And at the same time, in counterinsurgency, sometimes not targeting the people is the only means of achieving that objective. Um, so coming back to Carvin and Williams, uh, they argue that that's a, something that's present in wider American warfare a tension between trying to achieve decisive victory through uh, using all forces concentrated um, and at the same time showing restraint, not going overboard, only doing, essentially, only applying the effort that is necessary to achieve the aim and not more. So calibrating that can be exceedingly um, difficult. Um, so um, again, just um, I'm quoting here, Carvin and Williams, um, as, what they say is that restraint is part of that war effort. Restraint is a strategic aim in counterinsurgency. And that, as they say, uh, high-tech states, particularly the United States, use law to sharpen their swords, not to blunt them. So we need to consider um, that tension as a key part of counterinsurgency. Um, and I think I'll stop there. very much. We now move finally to Camilla Molyneux and Fara Shivan from the All Party Parliamentary Group on the Thrones and from Reprieve, respectively.
Okay, um, so we've decided to take a little bit of a different um, approach than has been raised here, and I think this is something we want to highlight, and that is that um, remote warfare is almost always discussed from the perspective of the West, and usually uh, in a strategic way, and very rarely um, it touches at all on the humans on the ground and how it impacts them. So um, that is what we will be talking about today. So um, our aim is with this paper and presentation is to try to bring the voices of people who are affected on the ground into discussions about policy. And we think that this is essential um, because it, um, it should be a part of how you measure the efficiency of a policy. And at uh, present time, it doesn't seem like the experiences on the ground at all influence policy. Um, our methodology is or has been interviewing people, so either on the ground in Yemen or over the phone. And so Bara and I have both been in Yemen and um, conducted interviews with people. And so it's based on the data we collected there. So if I can just ask you all to engage in this little exercise with me. So if everyone can close their eyes and please imagine, say the 15 people you love the most. And imagine that you're all in the same room. Then imagine that it's night and you're sleeping and all of you are abruptly awakened by the deafening sound of 12 Apache helicopters descending on your house. And so this is what happened to one of the families that I met. And I think it's crucial to try to understand what this way of remote warfare, so this was a Navy SEAL raid with American and UAE forces in Yemen. More than 20 soldiers with dogs came into this house with guns blazing. You had children were running out of the house in their pajamas in the desert, being followed by Apache helicopters and shot at. And this is the reality of some people on the ground. This is one young man who was shot twice. And this is a quote from his grandmother. Um, this is a picture of a, I don't know if you can see it, it's a truck upside down, it's been shot by a drone. Um, oh, thank you. So, several people died in this raid, including a young boy. Another young boy lost his hearing. Six pregnant women lost their children. And several of the breadwinners of the family were either killed or could no longer provide for their families. So they ended up with one man who could provide for a huge family. And because of uh, medical bills, they ended up in incredible debt. Now the consequences after this has been that the children struggle to sleep. They don't wanna go to school. Um, the grandmother, the matriarch of the family, walks 10 minutes into the desert every single night to sleep under a tree. And one of the other women in the family whose husband was killed in the bed next to her will only enter one of the rooms of their home. And these are some of the things the Americans and Emiratis left behind. Um, this is a picture that they sent me a few months ago, and this family lives under the constant presence of drones, or near constant. Drones fly over their house every single day. And this quote is from one of the young boys who says that the drones are so loud in the evening that you can't actually hear the TV. And I went out to meet this family, and I sat with them to see if I could hear the drones. And eventually there was a drone overhead, and I can honestly say, I don't think I've ever been as scared in my life. 
And I think this comes down to one of the issues in Yemen, which is that drones fly and survey this very big area, and it's not clear how they target people. And often the targets are based on a pattern of life and not on your person or who you are as, a, as an individual. And therefore, they never know who, or have a feeling that they don't know who's going to be attacked when. And so, whereas I could leave after this, this family lives here and doesn't have really an ability or money to move. Um, quickly on another example. Um, this is another uh, family who I uh, interviewed um, in 2000 and, uh, 2013. There was a strike on a wedding convoy where uh, the groom uh, family took the bride and on their way to, the, uh, to their village where they're supposed to have a ceremony uh, and a celebration, the strike uh, uh, hit, the, uh, hit the convoy. As a the result, there was uh, 12 uh, people who were killed 14 were, uh, were injured, and from the uh, words of the, uh, uh, the tribal leader of the area, he said, I wanted to celebrate one of my uh, community members. Uh, I heard uh, the sound of, of, a, of a drone uh, hovering very, very close. There was uh, four missiles that hit the back of the truck. We didn't understand what was going on. Uh, and then immediately uh, after the strike, uh, he went out and then basically uh, the, the, uh, the result was were, were those uh, 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 men uh, either dead or injured. Uh, the direct result was obviously you had at least eight families who lost their main breadwinners and you had from the 14th people who were injured at least four people who were permanently paralyzed, meaning also they would not be able to work or provide, uh, provide for their family. Um, this is um, uh, following the, uh, the, uh, the wedding strike. There was a raid on the same village. Uh, similar to what uh, Camilla just mentioned, uh, the raid on this uh, village did kill the eight-year-old Noir, who appeared in the picture, and also uh, destroyed uh, the lives of an entire community. Because of the, then the constant hovering of drones following the raid, so not only the incident that there was actually men and boots on the ground who shot uh, uh, women and children. In that, in this specific incident, there were nine children who were killed, uh, eight women who were, uh, who, who were also killed, and uh, seven other men uh, also died in the incident. The entire village had to evacuate because of the constant fear of the sound of drones constantly hovering because now they don't believe actually these uh, drones are precise and actually have a targeted individuals or wanted individuals, they actually believe that actually the, these are random and can at any moment this, uh, this event can happen, um, can happen again. Um, this is for example one of the grandmothers who is now taking care of the entire, uh, of the entire family and because the family was even depending on the social welfare service, so they're basically benefiting from benefits from the state, now the man has died so they can't even uh, get that uh, uh, benefit system. And because of the current conditions inside Yemen of the conflict, there is no way that you can go and talk to the uh, uh, service institutions and say actually we want to replace the, 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 the names because uh, basically, all of the funding is going through a specific UN agency who will only deal with the registered individuals who were registered before the, uh, before the, uh, before the conflict. So what you have is a, an elderly woman uh, taking care of an entire big, uh, big family. Um, and so these are two examples of um, many incidents that have happened in Yemen. And I think we want to give you a bit of more, um, some more or uh, different consequences of remote warfare on the people on the ground. And so we have collated sort of three categories of implications that we've seen when we've been talking to people. And one thing is that there are um, a lot of mental health issues 
So you have trauma and depression, fear, sleep deprivation, children attempting suicide, and miscarriages. And one son, one uh, woman, mother, told me that, and this is a quote, my son has attempted suicide multiple times. He walks to a nearby busy road and lies down. He wants to join his father in heaven. His father was killed by a drone strike a few years prior. This is an 11-year-old boy. And then there are also implications for education. So when breadwinners die, children might have to start working. Some mothers were talking about the journey to school being too dangerous. And classrooms don't feel safe to children. And so if they manage to get to classrooms, it's very difficult for them to actually learn. And finally, financial impacts. And these include the loss of a breadwinner, as we've said before, um, damages to property and to livelihood. And a lot during a lot of strikes, a lot of livestock dies. So that means that the animals that a lot of these families are living off of um, also die. And so we were thinking about what this research has taught us and what we think are two important takeaways. Um, one is that the experience of the affected people that we've talked to challenges this precise and discriminate narrative of remote warfare. We see that the, especially the presence of drones has a comprehensive impact on the people on the ground. And this is not just the people who are targeted by strikes, but people who live in the area because drones are so frequently um, flying overhead. One villager I talked to, his village of 1,900 people will evacuate between two to four times a month. Whenever a drone comes and flies over the village, everyone gets in their cars and they drive out into the desert. And so it has an impact on the people beyond those who might be legitimate targets. And so I think if we want to try to understand what are the appropriate policies to fight terrorism, we need to talk to the people on the ground and understand the effects it has on these people. And also that gives us a way of measuring or contributing to measuring the effectiveness of the policies. Final remarks. Um, I want to give a quick example of a place where actually there is a, 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 a place of a law and order inside the uh, country. In the province of Marib, it was considered just before the conflict as one of the most dangerous places that you can go to. So if you'd be a journalist or visiting Yemen, you'd be really advised not to go to, uh, to Marib because it was considered to be as a hotbed to, uh, for, uh, for, uh, uh, for Al-Qaeda. What happened is that since uh, the conflict, there was uh, established a local authority who basically strictly abides by the Yemeni constitution and the Yemeni law. So the local uh, uh, law enforcement uh, work diligently with the, uh, with the governor and the local community to engage. And it has become one of the few places today inside Yemen that journalists and even embassies and Western convoys can safely visit inside Yemen. Since 2015, there hasn't been a single incident of, or a terrorist uh, incident inside, this, uh, inside this, uh, this area. And simply, you need to, um, was the, 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 uh, the idea of uh, IA uh, trying to fulfill a self-fulfilling prophecy, that actually we can just target extremists before they plot in here. Um, what, what happened in Madrid is basically proves that once we have local engagements with the local authorities in a more productive and positive way. We actually push them to be more abide by the law. This will encourage more of the community to engage properly with the, uh, with the uh, local authority. It then prevents further, uh, it actually prevents uh, any uh, uh, extremist groups from operating inside the area. And I think what is happening in Marib today is a very, very clear example of a place where there is safe safety there is investments happening inside the country, and it's one of the few places that the Saudis have decided creatively to actually engage in a more positive way rather than having 
a, uh, a more uh, ongoing targeted, uh, targeted campaign. So what you have is one of the few places where there is uh, 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 safety and law and order. 